Good morning. I'm Cole Foster, and today's reading comes from the fifth chapter of the prophet Amos. We'll read two sections. Uh, you can find the fifth chapter on page 767 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We'll start in verse 1. Amos chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Galgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflicted the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Uh, now we're going to jump down to verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat name. Fatigued, disillusioned, tired, frustrated. We've been wounded by others. We have questions about you. National identity. There's a ton of things that are going on in that long stretch of time. And as you look over their shoulder you find things that match your life. Questions about God. Wondering how relevant he actually is. Is it enough just to kind of show up and do the stuff, to do the rituals? The prophet's right in a time of like moral apathy. There's lots of social injustice. There are places where they, they wonder, is God actually relevant to their regular life? They, they see their prosperity in some seasons and they say they don't need God. And other times they see deep need and brokenness, and they wonder if God even cares and loves them. All of that covers our lives. And so I'm saying that because over the next 12 weeks as we engage these prophets, I want to invite you to read them as if God's speaking to you because he is. There's a lot, again, that separates us culturally and in time, but, but what they're dealing with, you, you deal with every single day. And the places where you're wondering how God fits into your life, these prophets will 
will speak. And if you'll let their warnings be your warnings and their threat of judgment be your threat of judgment, then their hope can also be your hope. If you'll lean in and hear God rebuking them for their hypocrisy, uh, for the way they marginalize the poor, the way they, they live apathetic lives, if you'll, if you'll let that actually hit you fresh, then when they speak of the coming Messiah, that one day someone from the line of David will come and redeem everything, then that will also be good news for you. So I want to ask you to engage in that way as we walk down these roads the next uh, 12 weeks or so. I want to ask you to be open because the prophets serve a lot of functions in the life of God's people. Uh, they, they serve as kind of watchmen on the wall, warning of threats and dangers that, that are coming. They, warn as the, they serve as the voice of God speaking what God desires. So that has a warning part and it has a hope part. It's that we have. He's writing in the mid um, 750s BC probably. He's forecasting the fall of Assyria that would happen in 722 BC. But the, when he is writing, the text tells us Jeroboam II is king, which is a time of unprecedented prosperity. So space. Because there's something about apathy that actually confuses us. So, so you can maybe title Amos a warning against the apathy that comes from affluence. Amos is about the warning of apathy that comes from affluence. You could say he's clear. There's kind of three movements. The first two chapters of Amos are these like warnings to the nations and then to God's people. There's these, hey, I, I see what you've done and I'm coming in judgment. That's where the first two chapters start. And then chapters three to six, there's this series of poems and oracles where, where he explains this overripe fruit that's going to be devoured, this city that's going to be destroyed. And there's also a vision of hope in the middle of that. So Amos writes in a lot of spaces to maybe where you find yourself. And I don't mean that everybody in the room's life is going amazing. But by world standards, we find ourselves fairly affluent. And there's a numbing effect to our souls that happens in that space. And so Amos introduces himself in verse 1 of chapter 1. If you look with me on page 7, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which is in Judah. Remember Pastor Adam taught us last week that this kingdom split in uh, 950 B.C. In that space you had this divide. And this is now a guy from the southern kingdom of Judah speaking to Israel. It says, the guy from Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So those are the two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, two years before the earthquake. He gives it some marker historically that they would have understood what the season was he was talking about. So grab this for a second. This is a farmer from the other side of the country. He's uh, maybe a West Kansas farmer going into the big city to rebuke them. You could just ask like how that would go. Like, hey man, you're a podunk, you don't know anything. We are city folk. We're the ones with the affluence. We're the ones who have all the messages. And everybody from western Kansas goes, no, no, no. We're the ones who have all the insight into how life actually works. And if you haven't birthed a cow, you don't know how life really works. Right? That would have been Amos's framework. He, he comes from the country to the city to speak to God's people. And he starts with these rebukes to the nations. And as he starts, everybody would have been fist pumping in agreement to what he's saying because he first cries out against the nations. He, he names uh, these different countries. He names Damascus. He even names Gaza. 
which if you're watching the news and reading this this week, you're wondering like, wait a second, is this a prophetic voice here for our day? And in some ways, yes, that God always speaks into injustice. He's always pushing into spaces where there's a lack of equity, but, but no in the sense it's not exactly about the situation that we're watching in the news between Israel and Gaza. But, but what you see there is that Gaza's kind of always been on the scene. He names Tyre and Edom and the Amorites and Moab. He names these different cities which would have been the enemies of God. So, so the first thing he does is say, hey, God cares about your enemies. God cares what they're doing. He cares about what, they're, what they've done to you. And I'm going to come and judge. So they would have been welcoming this country bumpkin to their town to hear them agree with them on the judgment that the nations deserve. And then he moves in chapter 2, verse 4, to talk about Judah, which is where he's from. So it gets a little bit closer to home, but they're still pretty excited. If you're going to talk about those guys or your own people, if you're going to throw your people under the bus, we're in a pretty good spot as you talk about the transgressions of Judah. Look in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But they have, uh, but their lies that they have led them astray, those that their actually forefathers walked into. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. He says they've rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his statutes. But that might feel really benign to you. But remember, the law of the Lord is how he wants us to live in justice and in mercy. So to deny the law of the Lord isn't just about food and cleanliness laws. It's a, a moral law. People get hurt when you reject the law of the Lord. And he says these are lies that they've believed from their forefathers way back to the garden. They've always struggled to believe that God was good, that he was sufficient. He speaks into that space. So at this point, still they're leaning in. They're maybe applauding. They're doing like in a political rally where they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're agreeing with him as he does that. And now it turns to Israel in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, same formula, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Remember, people get hurt when you deny the law of the Lord. And so this is about now the social justice of the day. You're, you're marginalizing the poor. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. And they turn aside the way of the afflicted. And a man goes with his father into the same girl. Speaking of sexual immorality, right? People get hurt when you deny the law of the Lord. So that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge, which is kind of obscure, but there was a provision for a poor person to give their very cloak as collateral for some resources and some day's work, but you were supposed to return their cloak to them because it's what they slept in. So for them to now lay on these garments that have been taken in pledge and to sit in the house of the Lord and to drink wine with those who have been fined, you see this indulgent situation where they're marginalizing the poor, which is the first thing I want to draw your attention to in the book of Amos. The threat of affluence creates apathy and it blinds us to social injustice. The reason why affluence is so dangerous if it leads towards apathy is it blinds you to injustice. In this space, they're doing things that not only the law of the Lord would have told them not to do, but as you watch it, you just see the the grossness and the injustice of it. But because they had wealth, they had means, they could distance themselves by their privilege from the brokenness of the poor, they found themselves marginalizing those around them. Apathy can create danger when it's tied to affluence because it 
blinds you to social injustice that's around you. We'll just stay in verse 10, chapter 2. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, right? You used to be slaves, and I'm the one who delivered you and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the lands of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not indeed so that the people of Israel declares the Lord. He says, but, but you told the Nazarites to drink wine, which they weren't supposed to do. And you told the prophets to be quiet. You shall not prophesy. What he's saying is, I've already warned you. I've already told you. And you keep pushing away. In your affluence, you've taken a position of priority. You put yourself in some sort of leadership seat, deciding what you will and won't listen to, he's saying. Part of the apathy and the affluence mixed together about. As you were to walk through Amos, you would see they, they give themselves to luxury. It talks about just the excess and the indulgence in those spaces. Flip over to chapter 5 of Amos, the text that we had read. Let me just give you some examples. You, you heard this, but listen in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says this. He says, Seek me and live, but don't seek Bethel or Gilgal. Don't go to places where you might find some support or some help. Don't cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. They can't rescue you. Don't, don't go to the world for help. They can't rescue you. He says, seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like fire on the house of Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the stars, these, uh, these constellations, who turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who, who calls the water and the sea. God the Creator is the one who's speaking to you. Verse 9, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so their destruction comes from the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone and you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who, who take a bribe, who turn aside from the needy at the gate. All of these signs of social injustice. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate that it may be good or that the Lord and the God of hosts may be with you, that he will be gracious to the rampart of mercy of Joseph. In that space, what we see, sorry, I totally botched that last verse. Hate evil and love good. I have a note of mercy here. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph which is a sign of mercy, which I read what I wrote in the margin, which got me confused. In that space, what you see, even in this kind of crying out, there's this promise of mercy in the space where he's saying, hey, would you stop? Would you recognize your affluence has blinded you to the injustice that you actually participate in? History tells us that a lot of the wealth of the nation came at the hands of those who were poor. In that space, then, they're, they're using other people. They're, they're allowing unjust wages. They're, they're taking advantage of people. They're allowing people to go into slavery so that they might actually prosper. And in that space, he's rebuking them. Even though they don't feel the weight of their sin yet, he's saying this thing is spring-loaded. 
Because these relational sins that he names in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in chapter 5, they, they erode a culture from the inside. And as God's people participate in them from a space of affluence and apathy, they distance themselves from the very heart of God. Did you catch that? He says, instead of these things, would you seek me and would you seek good? The reason why this matters is it's close to the heart of God. God is the kind of God who comes close to those who are oppressed. And so to engage in injustice socially is to distance yourself from the very heart of God. And he's saying there's a threat that affluence has in these spaces. That the luxury and the oppression of the poor, this indulgence that you're engaging in, actually distances you from my very heart. Okay, I think as you look over their shoulder and examine your own life, I don't think you have to just go towards shame and evil as if like you're this horrible person who doesn't care about the people who are poor and needy. I don't think you have to swallow all of that to engage in Amos's words because our brokenness comes from somewhere. Their whole world has been shaken, like the, the kingdoms have split. There's lots of conquest and war, but here in that death and brokenness, and so they, they grasp for something for comfort. The prophets invite us to ask, where are you going for stability? What are you looking to to make you whole? Where do you look for sure footing? Where do you grab onto? What is the railing that you grip so that you don't fall? And we often buttress ourselves with stuff and pleasure. You, you soothe your pain. Just think about this last week. Think about moments where you were stressed and overwhelmed. Even the particular stress of keeping up with affluence. Think about how that soul-depleting nature got you to a space as you get ready to wind down for the evening. It was quiet, but your soul was loud and you were tempted to pornography, two more fingers of bourbon, Scanning social media, but buying something. In all of these spaces, you're, you're not just a terrible person. You, you have something inside of you that needs to be soothed. But affluence tricks you into thinking that you can do it on your own. Because they had all they had, they were tempted to go to other nations or tempted to keep marginalizing or to build systems and structures that would somehow satisfy their souls. And so Amos invites you to ask, hey, where has affluence led to apathy and blinded you to injustice? Where have you distanced yourself from the pain around you? And where have you either knowingly or unknowingly participated in it? The goods and services, the way that you engage, thinking about the global economy, knowing that what we often consume comes at a high price of someone else. Whether that's sex trafficking or it's unjust wages, the things that actually we indulge in Amos says God really cares about. And instead of continuing to marginalize people in our blindness, he calls us to turn around. That's the first point I want you to see. And we see it there in chapter 5. The next place he goes in chapter 5 is to say that there's a warning against apathy that comes from affluence because it confuses us into thinking that God's prosperity is actually affirmation of our lifestyle. To confuse blessing with his, his affirmation or his approval. That if I have a bunch of stuff, it must be that God is blessing me. Therefore, he must be cool with my lifestyle. That's the logic that we have. It flips on you when you don't have a lot. You feel like God has abandoned you. But in moments where there is blessing, like they're experiencing, the subtle temptation from the apathy of affluence is to confuse that 
blessing of prosperity with God being okay with your life. So look with me in chapter 5 still of Amos. You may have to turn the page to come to verse 18. He talks about the day of the Lord, which is a theme we'll see throughout all the minor prophets. It's the day when God would actually close this earth down. It's the day of judgment. It's the day that God's people look to to have everything that's been wrong made right. It's a day where God proves that he's heard the cries of his people and he brings judgment on the nations. However, if you are living unjustly, it's a day of judgment. So it has this double-edged sword, right? It's glory and joy and hope for those who are trusting in God and those who are pushing away from God. It's judgment. It's damnation. It's utter destruction, which I don't know where you are with God, but here those are just your two choices. You don't have a third or fourth or fifth choice the way the Bible talks. You either trust God and align yourself with him or you live opposed to him. And on that day of judgment, when he comes, he will judge the earth. He's just and will bring about judgment. There's a call even in that for those of you who are not yet trusting in Christ, not yet following God, to hear the warning that you can't save yourself. When the holy God who spun the stars and is over the deep, when he comes to judge, he will judge you. And so God's people are longing for this day because they've been told when that happens, God's going to redeem everything and reconcile everything. But look at what he says in verse 18. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. He goes into a house and leans against the wall to catch his breath and a serpent comes out and bites him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Okay, this podunk prophet now speaking into the big city, challenging them, says, hey, would you not confuse your affluent lifestyle with God's blessing and therefore his affirmation of what you're doing? Actually, when God comes, he's going to come to judge the very things that you're doing. And this would like blow their mind. They've been told and they are God's people. And the covenant promise was that they would obey God and he would be with them. But if they don't obey God, they don't follow after God, it creates a situation where they find themselves at odds with God. It's why we would need Jesus to come and die for us because we couldn't rightly live into the covenant the way we were supposed to. So that actually all of us deserve the judgment of God. This is the way the New Testament talks. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is actually death. It's what marks the rest of the scriptures. You see that story over and over. His mercy with him being absent. Don't confuse him blessing you right now financially with the idea that he's cool with your lifestyle, don't make that mistake. If God were to come now, it would just be judgment for you. And they, they struggle with this because they're God's people. They have a land. They have covenant. They've, they've walked with Abraham. So they find themselves constantly resisting the call to repentance. You see it in Jesus' life with the Pharisees where they, they resist Jesus, the one the New Testament kind of lives into, like shows us what the Old Testament was promising. The Messiah that actually had come. In that space, what you see is them pushing away from Jesus, preferring their sonship to Abraham, rather than being reborn into newness of life. So in chapter 7, we see something really fascinating. In the middle of the narrative, it breaks stride for a second, and we're introduced to a priest in this town where Amos is speaking. In verse 10 of chapter 7, it's Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, 
the king actually sends him or he sends to the king. And he says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel and the land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall surely die, which he didn't actually say, so he's misrepresented. And that Israel must go into exile, which he did say, if you don't turn, you will go into exile. But Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away from the land of Judah and go eat bread there. Go back to where you're from and prophesy there. But never again prophesy here, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Hey, how dare you come into our place? We're fine. Look at all the blessings around us. There's no concept that God might actually judge his very own people. So this opponent to Amos highlights for us the resistance in our heart and this priest confuses God's blessing with his affirmation of their lifestyle. Hey, we're fine. You see this throughout the Old Testament where the priests say, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Jeremiah says, you've treated their wounds like they're just surface wounds, but they're actually like, they're actually mortal wounds of the soul. Stop saying to people, you're fine because you don't feel the burn of the judgment of God. Instead, actually repent and turn. The danger of affluence is it can lead to apathy and we can confuse the prosperity with God's affirmation of our life. As you look over their shoulder, just ask that. How do you feel about where you are with God and what your life shows? Things are going pretty well. My hunch is you have a hard time feeling the weight of your own depravity and brokenness. Now, if you've just declared bankruptcy, everything's falling apart. If you're about to lose your job, if you just got caught, I bet it's not hard for you to agree. But to the degree that affluence is shielding you some, there's something here Amos wants to speak to you in mercy to say, hey, don't confuse blessing with God being okay with the life you're living outside of his commands. That's the second thing. So first, apathy coming from affluence blinds us to social injustice. And secondly, it can confuse us into thinking that prosperity is the same as affirmation. And then third, if you jump back into chapter 5 of Amos, it can actually tempt us to participate in worship in ways that manipulate God rather than actually bring our heart to Him. Affluence creates an apathy inside that has us just go through the motions when it comes to acts of worship. We, we do the stuff, but it's more to manipulate God to keep getting what we want than it is actual Worship. So, so jump back into Amos chapter 5. You heard this read in verse 21. And just catch like how sharp this is. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melodies of your harps, I will not listen. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Their affluence had created an apathy where even their worship was somehow mechanistic. It was just part of their habits, part of what they did. They just showed up and went through the motions thinking that's all that God required of them. And yet what this passage is saying is those feasts and sacrifices and doing all the stuff without a heart tied to God's heart for justice and righteousness is actually repulsive to him. Affluence creates apathy that tempts you to think that you can just come through the motions and just pay God off a little bit, give some money, serve every now and then, do a pretty good job, and he'll have to bless you. 
That's what he's all about after all, right? He's a good, loving God. Isn't that what he does is takes care of you and blesses you? So just make sure you're showing up. Make sure you do the stuff. Make sure you're not too out of bounds in that space. Then you guarantee God's kindness and blessing to your life. And Amos speaks into that space that affluence numbs us to believe and says, oh, no, no, no. God actually wants your heart. Because a heart that's tied to God's heart lives out God's heart. A heart that's tied to God's heart lives out God's heart. And God is about justice and righteousness. So you can't say you follow him and go through religious rituals and look at your blessed life and think you're fine when the way that you're living is in contrast or antithetical to who God says he actually is. What he wants is that your life would be so transformed that you would live for justice and righteousness. These themes we'll see throughout the rest of the prophets, so we won't make much of them here. But just here, these are things that God embodies, things God cares about, things that God, God constantly commands his people. It's what he does. He is just and he is righteous. And it's not the feasts or the showing up or the offerings or, or the things that you do that make you right with God. Remember he said in earlier in chapter 5, like, seek me and live. And then in verse 14, he says, seek good and not evil that you may live. He ties what you do with God and how you treat people together. And the New Testament will do this over and over and over again. Jesus will say, how do you say you, you follow me, but you don't do what I command? James says, how can you say you have faith and your works not match that? God is after an integrated life, not a perfect life, not one that proves you're worthy of love, but one that's actually integrated where repentance is a massive mechanism for you when you've gone astray to actually seek the goodness and to seek God himself, to seek doing good and matching his heart to the world around you while you actually seek him. But there's something about affluence that creates some apathy that tempts you just to go through the motions even in this room in ways that actually can do you harm. I love the way he closes chapter 5, and we'll just kind of use this to close our time down. There's a lot that the prophets are going to have for us. There's lots of repetition, so we can just focus on one or two things on each book. And, and in this moment here, I want you to understand the heart of God for those spaces where you don't sense that you need him, and yet the ache of your soul is so pronounced that actually you can't continue to cover it with substances or achievement or control or power or approval. And he says this is the way it's always been. Look in verse 25 of chapter 5. He says, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Right, the verse is a little tricky, but he's just said, Hey, your sacrifices I don't care about at all. And then he says, Hey, when you were out in the desert for 40 years, when I rescued you from Egypt and you were walking around in that space, was it your offerings that made you right with me? What he's doing in this space is saying, No, 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 it's always been God's mercy. It's always been God's mercy that we relate to him. It's always been the way he's called himself our God, the way he's loved us, the way he's done all the work. And we get a chance to simply respond, not manipulate or manage or coerce him. He says, was it your sacrifices in the wilderness? Was it, was it you doing all the stuff that made me pleased with you? The answer to that is a rhetorical no. And when you think that God owes you and things aren't going well, verse 26 comes up. You shall take up to, I don't know how you pronounce that, some, some pagan God and Another pagan god, the star god, the images that you have made for yourself. And those words can actually be translated like, like altar. They can be translated in spaces that, that talk about worship. And what he's saying is when you don't look to God, you're going to look to something else. Images that you have made for yourself. You're going to try to soothe the thing inside of you somehow. 
And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. What he's saying is I've always related to you by mercy. So when he calls them to engage in mercy, what you see is he's calling them to match the very heart of God. And in the prophet Amos, what you see is a prediction of how this mercy would actually happen. So from these oracles, we go into these visions and then it closes down with hope, which we need hope, right? Whew, we need some hope because we can't do it on our own. So here we come in chapter 9, verse 11. This is the only space where he speaks like this. He has for nine and a half chapters stacked the deck against them. And then he says in verse 11 of chapter 9, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as it was in the days of old. Now we might miss some of this, but to talk about the booth of David is to speak of the Davidic king, the promised one, the Messiah. He's saying in the last days what I will do is Keep my promise to send a Messiah to you, that he may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Beautiful restoration. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and I shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Remember he said, you're going to have vineyards and not drink it. They shall make gardens and eat that fruit. I will plant them in the land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amos pushes on the affluent because it tends to make you numb to the very voice of God. Can I just ask you as we close, are you numb to the voice of God? Would blindness and confusion and temptation to think that you're fine because of what you have mark some of the ways you engage in worship? How you see people? What you think God wants from you? And the answer is not do better and try harder and fix it. The answer is to trust Jesus. The antidote to apathy is to trust Jesus. The antidote to the things of your soul that are broken, the spaces where you feel insulated from God, is to actually turn to God. It's not try harder and do better because you can't do enough justice and mercy to make yourself right with God. So the just and the merciful one came to you. This descendant of David who came to rebuild and repair even what is broken inside your soul so you can be healed. Amos has this sharp edge to the affluent, but it ends with the message of the Bible where it ends of a message of hope. To trust Christ, to turn to him, to see him as the one who actually would welcome and redeem and make everything whole. That's the story of the Bible. That God actually one day will make all things right. He will rescue his people and he will set things the way they were there's a ton of garden imagery in this space we're going to go back to this new heaven or new earth and christ is the one who will do it and in this life now our task our joy our opportunity is to trust him you could trust your stuff you could trust your affluence but amos says it won't get you where you need to go and it will actually distance you from god instead the antidote to affluence is to actually trust jesus that's the message of amos and it's a message to us. And it's why we take communion every week to remind ourselves of this very message that is throughout the scriptures that you couldn't save yourself. So the one from the line of David came and gave himself up. He took the punishment that you deserve from all the things that you've done in ways that you can now be made right with God as you trust in him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to come and take communion. The way we do it is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. There'll be servers at all of these aisles and gluten-free here in the middle. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, remember there's just two choices. There's to align yourself with God, which this text says is only through the son of David, or to actually find yourself in a space of judgment. I say that because when the scriptures say that, it's actually a merciful kindness to clarify for you what's going on inside your soul. You may not be ready to trust Jesus today, but would you just take this time to pray? Would you ask God, hey, if this is real, would you speak to me? Would you help me? Would you show me? Would you ask him to kind of thaw out your apathetic heart from spaces of affluence if that's how you actually experience yourself this morning? Would you pray in your seat if you're not a follower of Jesus and ask God to speak to you? And if you're ready to trust Christ, I'll be here in the front row. I'd love to talk to you about what that could look like. And if you want someone to pray for you during this time, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, there'll be folks outside. Go out this door to the right by those couches. There's a place there where you can sit. People would love to pray for you and with you. In this moment now, respond to the message of Amos, which says nothing else could save you but the son of David. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We need you. We thank you. This is big and heavy. There's a lot here. Would you actually help us hold it in ways that we can respond to? Thanks that you came made a way for us to be right with you, that you, the God of justice and mercy, came and actually showed that. We celebrate that. We worship you for that. And we ask that you would change us by that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.